Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. I don't believe the numbers. That's my new show intro. (laughs) Yes, the virus is real. We need to mitigate risk, but the data, I believe, is seriously flawed. Likely, it is even fudged. We have a busy show for you tonight. Broadcaster, blogger, fiercely independent investigator, researcher George Freund will be here in hour two. The Kamala Harris administration being sworn in. I said that the way I intended to say it. The Kamala Harris administration. Placeholder president-elect Joe Biden as the 46th president, of course. But how long will he be president before he's pushed aside or before he steps aside? We all know That's what's going to happen. That was the plan from the beginning. So we need to pay more attention to Kamala Harris. Who is she? Where does she come from? Namely, the California Democratic machine under her former lover, Willie Brown Jr., who served as a state assemblyman for 30 years, 15 as speaker. He was also the mayor of San Francisco. And back in the 1970s, Willie Brown and many others As we'll uh, discuss in the second hour, many others in his party in California were bending over backwards to court political favor with a madman, a mass murderer, namely Jim Jones, the leader of the People's Temple, who in 1978, you know the grisly details, Jones would lead a mass suicide or murder of his followers in their camp of uh, Jonestown in Guyana. And all 909 people, including children, died after being forced to drink cyanide-laced punch. And as I mentioned, Jim Jones was a powerful political force in San Francisco. He was a mentor to Willie Brown, and Willie Brown was a mentor to Kamala Harris. George Freund will be uh, with us in the second hour to discuss. This hour, members of federal, provincial, and municipal police forces in Canada all swear an oath of allegiance, the necessity of Performing this ritual goes back beyond the beginning of modern policing. The basic text of the oath is remarkably consistent throughout the Western world. Invoking an oath is looked upon as necessary due to the enormous power and trust society bestows upon the position and public concern that abuse of such power and trust will ultimately have accountability. And the oath goes something like this. I I solemnly swear that I will be loyal to Her Majesty the Queen and to Canada, and that I will uphold the Constitution of Canada, and that I will, to the best of my ability, preserve the peace, prevent offenses, and discharge my other duties faithfully, impartially, and according to the law, so help me God. Now, most police in Canada take that oath very seriously. Sadly, some do not. And these days, it seems as though The very people who took an oath to serve and protect are too busy enforcing excessive and ridiculous public health orders. The Charter of Rights be damned. If you're assembling in mass numbers in the name of social justice, the police will look on, maybe even take a knee. If you decide to pay or to play a little pawn shinny, overzealous police may just tackle you to the ground or taser you. On Saturday, of course, police dispersed crowds at two anti-lockdown protests, one at Dundas Square, another at Nathan Phillips Square, 
there were th uh, three arrests. One after a protester allegedly assaulted a police officer. If that is true, that individual should be punished to the full extent of the law. 18 people were charged with failure to comply. Failure to comply with what? A stay at home order. What's happening to our country? Well, a growing number of retired and active duty police in Canada have seen enough. They're as disturbed and distressed as you are by what they're witnessing. And a few of them got together and formed a group called Police on Guard for Thee. One of the founders is Vincent Gersies. He's a retired senior Ontario provincial police constable. He's a former forensic collision investigator, an ex-ERT member. And he's very concerned about the present displays of police overriding their constitutional oaths at the hands of ambitious politicians and even police management. He doesn't like the dangerous potential of certain tyranny, political and emerging globalist agendas colliding with Canadian patriots. Again, Vincent Gersies, a founding member of Police on Guard for Thee. Vincent, welcome to the, the uh, program. How are, how are you? Good evening, Richard, and thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. Tell us a little bit more about Police on Guard for Thee. When when did was it formed, and and roughly how many members so far? Well, I, I actually can't speak in volumes about that group. The views that I'm going to express, and the opinions, and the ideas that I expressed on your show this evening, they will be my own, and are in no way represent any previous or current group that I belong to. Um, that has been the request of most groups that I have belonged to or do belong to. And so I value that, and um, but I can speak to the issues that you want to speak to uh, this evening. I just can't act as a representative from any group or talk about any information from any group specifically. I understand. But putting the group aside, though, you're, you're certainly not alone. There are other individuals, and they would have to speak on behalf of themselves, obviously. But it, in other words, you're not alone. There are a number of police, retired, active duty, that are clearly upset with what's going on. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's correct. As, as far as the group that you had mentioned, I was the first officer to sign on with that group. Uh, that is retired officer. I need to be clear about that. Um, I, I was the first member to sign on publicly with that group. And um, so there are a number of, yes, there are a number of uh, quite a few police officers that are concerned about this issue, and I and will speak to what that issue is specifically. It has been my concern. It is the concern of several groups. It is the concern of most citizens that I see protesting these, uh, these issues. And that is that um, police officers have taken an oath. You know, um, whether you're an active duty member or for those retired members will recall what our oath was. And the oath is consistent with in Ontario with the Police Services Act of Ontario. There are incredible consistencies across the board with the oath, the Police Services Act, and the Canadian Charter of Rights. They're all saying the same thing. So These new, medi give new me medical mandates now that have come out seem right. to be in conflict with all of that. So what is a police officer to do when he has received instructions from police management, from the government to enforce these medical health, these medical uh, orders, uh, we don't expect police necessarily to be constitutional experts, but they receive their their marching orders. Uh, 
what are they to do when they feel that 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 something they are being asked to enforce isn't consistent with the Charter of Rights? Well, my opinion, and again, I'm expressing my opinion and what I think these officers should be doing and what I would be doing if I was an active member, which I am no longer, but I have submitted 32 years of service to the organization and uh, I think I can, uh, I, I am not speaking on behalf of the organization, I'm just speaking on behalf of my knowledge um, from situations that I would have dealt with in times when there is conflict between uh, my moral obligations to society and perhaps an order that comes my way. And it's really a, a, a question of having your moral compass dialed in properly. And if it's calibrated and you feel you're getting conflicting orders, in my opinion, the fundamental law of our country is the Canadian Charter of Rights. And these are the basic principles and guiding principles of all our all of our laws. They are they are based on that foundation. And if the charter had come into effect in 1982, and that was the same year that I had joined the police service. And it was, you know, very much instilled in training that um, this is something that we protect and we adhere to the principles of these laws. And th as time would go by, on occasion, uh, we would breach these these laws. Um, I would say, not to my knowledge intentionally, but sometimes uh, a little bit of police overreach can happen, and the courts would rule on those cases and set precedent that where there's a violation, even a slight violation of those rights of individuals, um, in cases where people were charged, those, those cases would be dismissed, because that's the way the courts felt the importance of the breaches of these, these uh, rights needed to go with charges. So there, there are fundamental, fundamental and foundational um, laws that we have in this country. So when medical mandates are being issued by the provinces, they can create new laws, but these, these laws are now in conflict with the Charter. And that leaves a, um, a real predicament as to um, trying to do two opposing things at the same time. If you're going to if you're going to value your oath, follow the Police Services Act and act in accordance with the Canadian Charter, these medical mandates are 180 degrees in the opposite direction. So herein lies our problem. Right. So let's, if we can, address some specifics. For example, there was a um, an individual out in the east end of Toronto. Uh, who was visiting, I believe it was a tea uh, shop, a bubble tea shop, and um, uh, he was approached by police, later arrested. I believe they asked him for identification. He, I don't believe he provided that. Uh, we know later that that individual took his own life in his home. Uh, we don't know what the connection was um, you know, to the, uh, to the arrest, if any, whether he had previously underlying mental health conditions. I don't know the particulars. Uh, but it, 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 the idea that police can come up to you and simply ask, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Ask for identification. Um, goes above and beyond the, you know, the, the, the pale. Um, 
What are your thoughts on that, if you can speak to that case or hypothetically to that type of situation and how it was handled? Yeah, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to discuss that case um, with detail and specifics because I'm not familiar with all the details. I have some vague understanding of what happened there. But again, um, it, it is clear that different officers are taking different approaches on this issue, whether you're in agreement with feeling the necessity to follow your oath, the Police Services Act and the Charter, or you feel that um, you were handed some medical mandates and that seems to be the direction that you need to go in. Um, This is causing uh, an extremely high level of stress within the police agency. Um, I've had a number of officers reach out to me personally and and discuss the issue. And again, I have my opinion and my belief on how these matters should be handled. And I'm in agreement that, uh, that our charter is our foundational principle. And if we start breaching that charter, the government does have, the federal government does have the, um, the ability to suspend your rights from time to time as necessary, but they need to demonstrate why they have um, suspended your rights. And it has not, uh, the necessity has not come forward by our federal or provincial governments, we have not been provided with the necessity and the rationale behind why this is necessary. In my opinion, and in many officers' opinion, the data does not support that. And that's going to depend on, um, different people will have different viewpoints on that, and that'll be dependent on the data that you're looking at. I certainly look at a different data set I have a background in forensic investigations, and so for me, I choose to look at factual data. I I choose to go to the direct sites where I can get my data. And if you're going to follow data provided by mainstream media, I believe that um, mainstream media is the huge cause of the problem here. I think there's a lot of manipulation in the media. There's a lot of fear-mongering. And that the the what you're hearing in the mainstream media is not supporting the true data. I would agree. I, I think that they are in the fear business, and um, all we hear is this steady drumbeat about cases and new cases uh, with no context, and the numbers, just on the face of them, can be frightening. But without the context, how many of those? cases or, or or positive tests, in other words, not infections, positive tests are false positives. How many of those are symptomatic versus asymptomatic? How many resulted in hospitalization? Uh, so simply to rely on new cases, which seems to be driving a lot of the, the lockdown uh, measures and, and restrictions, uh, just seems to me to be patently absurd. I, I will maybe delve into some of your forensic expertise a little bit later in the hour, but let me ask you just to give me, to get your reaction when you saw, as as many or most of us did, this video, for example, of a, um, a gentleman out west who was trying to play a little pond hockey or, or a little shinny on the ice and was uh, tackled uh, by police and, 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 and roughed up for because he happened to be holding a hockey stick, basically. What, what was your reaction when you saw that? I was very appalled by what I had seen. Now, I understand that there's some commentary on that, that uh, the things that had precluded what was seen in the video 
the um, maybe five or ten minutes of discussion or something that was going on prior to that is something that we don't see and we're not familiar with. But I, I, I know what I did see in the video that had come out that was exposed. And um, I, I found that very, very shocking and very unprofessional in behavior. And I just, I just uh, could not understand the necessity behind a lot of what had happened there. It was, I found it very disturbing, and I just could not see myself having been in a situation like that. I, I just could not have seen myself in that profession reaching that point, utilizing that type of force uh, in, in that situation. But again, I didn't see what precluded that. Uh, but um, again, what I did see was um, unprofessional behavior. And um, I seriously question, seriously question um, a lot that had gone there, uh, gone on there on the side of the police. But that wasn't as shocking to me as the following day uh, when I had heard the comments made by the chief of police in uh, in Calgary, and, and that I found disturbing as well. I, what I would have expected to find was um, senior management of an organization say, you know, we're going to look into this matter and we, we need to investigate this matter thoroughly before coming to any conclusions. There needs to be a, a thorough insight or investigation into this. But and Vincent, maybe you could regale. What, sorry, I was just well, going to ask you to regale us as to what he said. Was made was similar to, um, you know, we're, we're just doing our job. We're just enforcing the law. And the, and, and that's the, the necessity of the agency. Um, the, the necessity of the police agency is far more than enforcing the law. Police officers are really the guardians of the fabric of society. And absolutely, there's a duty incumbent on police services to understand the moral principles in play and to f- promote the moral courage to keep that fabric of our society from tearing itself apart, especially in times when this type of contradiction of legality comes into play. But I will say I was very impressed uh, over the last few days by the new mandates coming down from the province of Ontario of lockdown restrictions, the response, I'm not impressed by that, but I'm impressed by the response that came out, and it came out by the Ontario Chiefs of Police Association. And that's an indicator that says the chiefs within the province, they're getting together and they're discussing this issue, and they're saying we should take a provincial agreement approach between all of our police agencies and how we're going to address this issue. And I think they did it very professionally. And I think they, um, they really um, made the right decision when they said, we are not going to be stopping people who are walking down the street. We are not going to be pulling over cars to check randomly, and we are not going to be entering your homes. And I think that was a very professional um, very wise approach, and uh, they really, they really did the good thing by by making their enforcement action clarified.
Agreed. Vincent, if I could get you to just hold on, we'll take a quick timeout. Vincent Gersey is retired senior Ontario Provincial Police Constable, one of the uh, founding members of Police on Guard for Thee. But again, let's be clear, he's speaking uh, for himself, not behalf on behalf of any group or organization. He's speaking on behalf of himself. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, George Freund, a blogger, broadcaster. You may be familiar with his uh, podcast, Conspiracy Cafe. He'll be here to talk about the connection between Jim Jones and the People's Temple, uh, this murderous cult. We know how that turned out in uh, the jungles of Guyana back in 1978. Anyway, Jim Jones was, it turns out, a very powerful and influential political player inside the California Democratic machine. Vincent Gersey stays with us, one of the founding members of Police on Guard for Thee, a retired senior Ontario Provincial Police Constable. Before the break, Vincent, you were talking about the Ontario Chiefs of Police coming forward and and basically saying we're not going to be stopping people on the street, we're not going to be stopping cars, we're not going to be going into homes. It would seem to me that if they felt compelled to make that statement, that maybe they were being asked to do those things and they were sort of pushing back. Is there kind of an internal struggle going on? Is there pushback happening here? Well, I'm not I'm not privy to the reason why they made the statement they made. I'm very happy that they made it. I think it was the right statement to make. I think it was a very positive statement. And I, there's indications in there that um, that there's an understanding that that would be a charter violation breach, and that um, they they're they're not interested in violating your charter rights, and they're coming out collectively and stating that. And I think it's a wonderful thing. It was a, it was. A, the first time I've seen a comment like that since this has been begun almost a year ago. So that that's a that's a, a push in a great direction, and it's it's certainly not overreach. And um, I think it I think it came out professionally as as they always are, and it, it's clear direction. It's clear direction to all the officers across the province that they're going to take a, a uniform position on that, and it was necessary. And it, it, it could have come out the other way, but I think they took a wonderful approach. Well, let's contrast what's happening here with what's happening in Quebec. And I know that you served uh, with the, the Ontario Provincial Police, uh, but your colleagues in Quebec are being asked. Uh, I mean, they are going into people's houses uh, in one incident that we know of. Uh, there may be more that I'm not aware of, but um, why do you suppose – that the police in Quebec are are not taking the same types of position that the police here in Ontario are. I mean, that's a very. I know I'm asking you to speculate, but um, well, the decisions are being reached across the country, province by province. So that province has made a decision that this is the way they want to execute it, and this is the way they want to roll with their their strategy. Ontario's taken a different position, and every province has taken a different position because these mandates are coming down on a provincial level. So every province is working it in its own way. And in Quebec, they they are using telewarrants. So if an officer goes to a home and has 
grounds to feel the need to go in, they'll request that information over a phone and get access over a phone by speaking to a justice of the peace. But we don't do that here in Ontario, and and thankfully we don't. Uh, that that's that would just be, again, in my opinion, very wrong and very invasive. Um, I mean, this this goes back to a, a previous issue that we were discussing. So if we really start from the beginning, it's really initiating with the PCR test. And my science yes. background really says, hey, take a look at this test. How accurate is this test? Um, is this test really designed for viruses? And in doing so, um, it's supposed to be run up to a cer- certain cycle rate. So the polymerized chain reaction test, PCR test, um, we don't know what rate it's being run at when you get a test because that's not something anybody has information to. But if you run it at a rate too high, um, even if you listen to what Anthony Fauci said in the U.S., if you run it beyond a certain rate of 35, you're getting very inaccurate information. So there's really no argument that the PCR test is somewhere between 50 to 95% inaccurate, and it seems to be run at higher test cycle rates than it should. Um, so that, that immediately throws a, a flag out saying, what is going on here? Why, why, are, why are people relying on tests that have a very high incidence of inaccuracy. That, that in, in a police investigation, you'd look at that and say, I can't go anywhere with that evidence. You know, I, I, would, I wouldn't get a conviction based on that type of accuracy. That's so, that's so true. That's so that's, true. That's, that's the beginning. That's the beginning of the whole thing is we're talking about numbers. So you do tests and you get numbers but if those numbers are extremely inaccurate then what good are they and then you say now we have more numbers and the numbers are going up and they're getting higher and higher well what what does that mean if they're so inaccurate so that's, right that's if you're going to test and more it, people you're going to get more positives more false positives correct and more, so more cases so, to flaunt as the rationale for these these restrictions so you start off with numbers by numbers of tests and then they translate to cases a positive test is a case well if if a positive test is so inaccurate and it's giving you you know more tests equals more inaccurate data more inaccurate data gives you more cases more cases that's inaccurate and what does that mean? What does a case mean? Now you have to take a look at that and say, what does that mean? Does that mean a dead body? Does that mean somebody in the ICU? No, that means somebody tested positive, so they call it a case. So it doesn't mean someone's in the hospital. It doesn't mean someone's even in, um, symptomatic. It just means they tested positive to a number that is highly inaccurate. Correct, correct. And then among the truly positive cases, and we don't know what those numbers are, but a true positive uh, is, you know, is that person symptomatic? Are they showing symptoms? Uh, Are they likely to spread? And uh, if they are symptomatic, do they require hospitalization or is it basically like a bad cold? Right. So I look at the first set of numbers. I look at the second set of numbers. 
and then I can just ignore everything else. I, I mean, you can get into it, and there are many, many other things you can look at, but, uh, and they're all telling me the same thing. But I can skip over them all, and I can just go to the last number that I want to look at, and that is year to date. And so now that the year is over, we're into a new year, we can look at, let's just look at a three-year trend or a four-year trend or a five-year trend and just say, how many, how many more deaths have we had over the last year since this became problematic in February or so? Right, many, excess how deaths. More, how many excess total, total case count mortality have we had in this country? And the average listener or the average person who's been following mainstream media is going to think we should have a spike. We should see this jump in numbers. It's not there. There's no spike. There's no change. And if we're talking about 200 and something thousand deaths, I don't know the exact number. I don't have it with me uh, in front of me. But if you, if you look at the, the case average over just the last three years, the numbers are very close. Um, one year they go up a little bit. The next year they go down a little bit. Right. Very Due close. to population and demographic change. That's correct. And if you were to look at that on a graph, um, you would you would think that they're almost exactly the same. You you visually can't even see the difference on a bar graph, but based on what you're hearing in the media, you would expect to see a huge jump in the death count, and that's not visible. So that's a telltale sign that um, that this is not what the media is making out to be. Uh, that in connection with the other piece of evidence that I refer to as the the narrative control within the media there is only one narrative that can be spoken and if any doctors nurses or professionals come out to speak contrary to that narrative they are immediately demonized and shut down and right they um, have their experts their pre-approved list and Anyone else who wants to bring forth their experts, that's not allowed. Even though those other alternative viewpoints, those people are eminently qualified, maybe just as or more qualified than some people that are sitting around this cold, this uh, science table. That's correct. And if we just look the other day, um, member of provincial parliament, Roman Baber, had left the Conservative Party with a note. Actually, he was booted out of the Conservative Party. He had brought forward information clearly indicating that the lockdowns are causing far more damage and more deaths than this virus. And he had presented data directly from Stats Canada, and, and this is all valid data that he's presenting. And he was demonized and, and harassed by the premier. And you're looking at this going, he's actually presenting factual data. Just look at the data, right. you know, before you make a cost benefit any- analysis, which should have been performed in March a year ago. Yes. Yes. We're approaching another break here. We'll um, we'll take a quick time out when we come back. I want to ask you maybe to, you know, to step back from your role as a, a, a former police officer and just ask you what what do you think is really going on here? What is this really all about? Vincent Gersey's senior retired OPP constable and uh, the one of the founders of Police on Guard for Thee. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. We're back with Vincent Gersey's from, well, 
he's speaking on behalf of himself, but he is one of the founding members of Police on Guard for Thee. You can check them out. They have a Facebook page. Just go to Facebook, Police on Guard for Thee. When you look at the data as a former forensic investigator, and it doesn't add up in terms of the response, what do you think is really happening here? Why are they doing this? They, the ruling elite, if you will, the government, why are they doing this? I think it's best to look at it as sort of an abstract photograph or an ink blot. You may interpret it as one thing and I may interpret it as something else, but I like to specifically look at the data. And if you look at the data and you start adding the data up in your head, you can come to a conclusion of where it's taking you or the image that you see, and I may come up with a different image. But there's a lot of other data that we haven't spoken about. And I believe that other data starts to paint a picture of where we're going and what is behind this. And you may end up with a slightly different image than what I see, but I think you'll get the general gist. So we're talking about PCR tests, a number, case count, that's a number, but let's get away from the medical side. Let's look at our financial situation. If you look at the Canadian debt load, that we currently have and what we had eight or 10 months ago, it is a horrific amount of money. And if you think that the majority of that money went towards COVID relief program, then you're incorrect. We've chalked up a tremendous amount of debt over a very short period of time. And Canadians need to ask themselves, where did that money go? Why was that money spent? And why are we now in such heavy debt? So that's part of the image. The other image is why are all the small businesses going out of business? Why are they being given certain mandates to essentially crush and kill these businesses? Do you feel like the government is nursing you back to health? Or do you feel like there's a jackboot on the side of your face? Take a look at that. What image does that create? Is the government really supporting and nurturing businesses? And it appears that a lot of businesses are shutting down. It appears that the largest, wealthiest businesses are doing very well. When you have a brisket barbecue restaurant that is surrounded by 200 officers and 10 horses to make sure that nobody gets in there to get brisket, while next door you have a thriving Costco It's filled to capacity. There's something wrong with that picture. Why is there so much fear? And the main question I would ask is, why is the media exceptionally biased and completely controlled and paid for by our government? Why is it you can't get out an alternative narrative? Why is it that in a crisis like this, where you would want, anytime you're trying to work on a solution to a problem, including in policing matters, including in forensic investigations, you're always open for all the data. You want all the data, get as much data and information as you can. Why is this data, some data being suppressed by professional agencies, doctors, nurses, other professionals? Why are those voices being silenced? And then how does that tie into event 201, which took place back in October, November of last year. The tabletop exercise, Bill Gates Foundation, Johns Hopkins University, 
I believe an agency affiliated with the World Health Organization, all sort of played out this scenario, how they would respond to the next pandemic, which, of course, occurred just two months later. That's right. My takeaway from Event 201 was the narrative in why the media needs to be so tightly controlled, why they needed to completely control the narrative. And they never give a reason behind that. They just said, we need to completely control the narrative. That's very interesting, and that's very telling. We need to ensure that our story gets out and no other story. So there are many, many smoking guns and many inconsistencies, enough for me to point the finger at who the target is behind this. No, no. It's a large picture, and and I don't claim to have any real understanding on who's behind it, what's behind it, how it's all unraveling. But it's clear that something else is piggybacking on this COVID agenda. I've said this ad nauseum on the program that this is being used as cover. People are dying from COVID. There's no question. And this is a serious health situation. And we need to mitigate risk. And we need to follow some protocols, not necessarily the ones that are being handed down in a very ham-fisted manner, but this is being used as cover for a number of different agendas. And you talk about small businesses being shut down while box stores are flourishing. Amazon, of course, is flourishing. What it amounts to is a massive transfer of wealth, once again, from the the middle class, the working class, to the, um, I won't say the 1%. It's not the 1%. It's the one one thousandth of the 1%. It's that old saying, right? Never let a crisis go to waste. Well, we have a crisis and it is being used, and I would say, not for good, not in our interest. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. So, Vincent, for you personally to come forward like this, uh, I'm I'm guessing that was not an easy decision. Um, Can you share with us how your your other colleagues, um, either active duty or or senior or retired, um, how they have responded to your coming forward? Are they happy about it, dissatisfied? Um, So far, all of the comments that I've received from both active members that have reached out to me and other retired members that have reached out to me. They've all been very positive, very favorable comments. And uh, again, those individuals reaching out to me feel similar, similarly to the way I feel on this issue. And what about, uh, again, I'm asking you to speculate, you're retired now. I don't know what how much contact you have with uh, colleagues who may now be in, in police management. Um, but what are you hearing within the ranks? Is is there a, any is there any conflict between uh, police management and and the rank and file members of the uh, of the various police forces with regards to how what they are being asked to do and 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 um, how they are being asked to enforce these these uh, health measures? Well, I personally had a number of in- individuals reach out to me direct. And they are from other police forces, not just the one that I used to work for, but other agencies. And yeah, there is there is conflict within the agencies. There's there's conflict, and um, it, it is 
largely due to the medical mandates that are issued, which go in contravention of the, the Charter, the Police Act, and the oath. So um, this, is, this is an issue that's really putting the members in, in, in the conflict situation. Uh, a number of officers are indicating that they, they see the issue, they completely see the bigger picture and the issue and how this is rolling out, and that there are those other ones that don't. They don't see the issue. So th- this is where the problem really lies, is that those individuals who, who really can add up the numbers, look closely at factual data, rather than thinking emotionally or being driven by mainstream media narrative, who can actually do a little bit of homework and look at the supporting data. And, you know, I'd say for your listeners, whether you, whether you take this position or you don't take this position, um, I'd really ask everybody to just do a little bit of homework. Do your own data without having a preconceived notion of what you think it really is, and you're going to discount the other side. My position has always been to look at both sides, always look at both sides, or look at multiple sides, and come up with the most accurate data to support, you know, which which position is supported by the majority of accurate data. Um, so whether it's on a mask issue, you know, are masks effective or not effective, um, you know, if there are studies on either side of the coin, well, how? What is the quality of the study? How in depth is the study, and how many studies are there? And you know, where there's overwhelming evidence to support one issue over another, well, that would be the issue that I go with. So it's a matter of reaching out, reaching out, and and collecting your own data. And it's not hard to do. Um, collect your own data, but certainly don't don't take anything that comes off of mainstream media because it's it's not accurate and. There's uh, other agendas at play coming through mainstream media. So do your own homework. And um, if I'm going to put you on a, uh, on a path of, you know, you can start here, I always recommend James Corbett of the Corbett Report. He's a Canadian living in Japan. I find his work to be exceptional. And I agree. He, al- he always um, shows his source data. So he always, in his show notes, he'll say, "Here, if I'm speaking about this issue, here's where I got all my data, so you can go check in the show notes and you'll see that what I'm saying is true because it's all available for you to find. So he's a good starting point. And from there, branch out. There is a new newspaper that's just come out in uh, the Toronto area, branching out across Canada, and it's called Druthers, druthers.net is the website for the free paper and the paper is available free for those people that want it and it it has some really great articles on all the subject matter as well when you see what's happening in this country uh, are you fearful that we're not going to return to the old normal and and that there will be a continuation of and even perhaps even a ratcheting up of these types of measures, regardless of what the data, data shows? Um, I, I do have concerns, but um, I don't look at it as a countrywide concern. I really look at it as a global concern right now because uh, all of the Western countries and just about every country really is affected in the same manner. It, it's a global issue, and... 
I, I don't think that um, I think it'll be a while before individual countries start to take a a position, a specific or maybe shift in direction in their position. And right now, I, I think there aren't enough individuals who can look at the data and fully understand the manipulations behind the data. It's going to take enough people waking up to really understand that. And, you know, I, I have a, um, there was an old poem that was done by Pastor Martin Neimoller, who was a concentration camp victim in 1937 and 1945, and he had written something, and it's been it's been tweaked and remade for this situation. And I'd just like to read it. It'd take me about 30 seconds to read this. Yes, go ahead. He said, he said, first they came for your freedom of movement, but you were free to move around, so you didn't speak out. Then they came for your freedom of assembly, but you were still free to gather with friends, so you didn't speak out. Then they came after small businesses, but you didn't own one, so you didn't speak out. Then they came for your freedom to protest, but you didn't care. You never protest, so you didn't speak out. Then they came for your freedom of religion. You weren't religious, so you didn't speak out. And then they came for your freedom of choice, but you still had choice, so you didn't speak out. And then they came and attacked your freedom, and there was no one left to speak out for you. And that's something everybody needs to fully understand. And we just have a couple minutes here, Vincent. Your ancestors came from Lithuania, I believe. Uh, and they they lived through, uh, you know, the, the, this type of totalitarian nightmare that, I mean, it, it hasn't arrived here yet, thank God. But um, what what lessons have you taken from that and from your from your ancestors? Well, there are incredible similarities to people fleeing one country during a communist Soviet invasion and all that occurred following that to a country that is beginning to violate its charter rights of the individuals within the country without stipulating a reason behind why, without justification behind why. And the direction that that can take the country when your media is all chatting the same narrative with no, um, with social media blocking dissenting voices, with um, your, your country operating in the situation in which we're in currently, moving in a direction that seems similar. I have been approached by a number of individuals who have come from European uh, pre-communist countries that have fled communism to come here to say they're watching it seeming to grow here. They're seeing the same thing that appears to be growing actively. And it's very concerning if, if in fact, that is the direction we're going. But it... Uh, we're not there yet, but the telltale signs that led to revolutions of the past appear to be on our doorstep. Uh, likewise, I've, I've talked to a number of people who escaped communist regimes or totalitarian regimes of one sort or another, and uh, they do see 
eerie and disturbing similarities when when they witnessed how those movements in those countries, communism, uh, how they began, and that that drip, 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 uh, and it starts the way we're seeing it start here. So we have to be uh, vigilant. Vincent, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on, and I uh, I uh, I thank you for your uh, for your courage. And we, I hope we can talk again. Thank you so much. And I'll just leave with a, a closing note from Voltaire, who said, those who can be convinced to believe absurdities can be convinced to commit atrocities. We'll leave it there with those profound and uh, disturbing words. Thank you again, Vincent. Thank you. All right. When we come back, George Freund on Jim Jones, the People's Temple and the Democratic Machine in California. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. 